uh, over the Labor Day holiday, as uh, uh, Carter was just saying, we went down to the Comal River uh, for a float trip. And uh, Sunday night, the night before we floated the river, Mary Elizabeth and I, we went out to the grocery store to get some food and for the next morning. And when we came back, we saw something that was absolutely magical. And that was, there was this epic game of mafia going on. It was awesome. There were like 30 some odd folks playing this game and people were getting killed left and right. We were trying to figure out who the cops were and, and townspeople were, you know, they were getting slain left and right, like I said. So it, was, it was just amazing fun to watch you guys play. But if you've never played Mafia, I want to tell you, it is a game based on lying, deception, and it's all about trying to figure out the who's who of this little town. Everybody's out to kill off the Mafia, and it's the Mafia's job to try to stay alive. And the only way that happens is by lying. Nobody knows who anybody is. And so their true identity is really hidden from them. And because of that, nobody trusts a word that anybody else says. Because you and I both know that when somebody's identity is unknown, we don't believe a word that they say. We want to know who somebody is before we'll listen to what it is that they have to say to us. I want to suggest to you that is squarely, that is exactly what is going on in this text tonight because there are people that Paul is saying are confronting him about his message. And the way that they're doing that is to try to undercut at who he is. In other words, his identity is being called into question. Therefore, his message is not given any weight. They, these Judaizers that we'll look at later on, are saying this guy isn't from Jerusalem, the core of Christianity. Therefore, don't trust him. Instead, trust us and trust our message. And Paul, right here, right now, will have none of it. He comes out guns blazing. And the reason that he will have none of it is because he wants you to hear one thing and one thing only. That God's grace, that God's grace is free and unmerited. That our acceptance with God is not based on our moral efforts or our try-harder way of living. And why would this be so important? And here's why. Because folks like you and folks like me, deep down, believe in our hearts. We really think that God will finally accept us. That He'll finally have something to do with us when we get our act together and quit doing all the bad stuff and start doing all of the good stuff. But time and again, Paul will call that very mentality in this letter one word. Slavery. To live that way is to be a slave. So today, we're going to get a look at Paul's life. He's going to open up to us his own personal story and show us in this text the three things that are there in your bulletin. How the gospel of God's radical grace comes to him. What it does in him. 
and how it goes through him. And I must say from the beginning, it's not only in Paul that these three, that the gospel works in those ways. We could say how it comes to us, what it does in us, and how it comes through us. And so there is where we'll look tonight. So if you will, let's take a look at how the gospel comes to Paul and to us. Look right there at verses 11 and 12. Right off the bat, Paul is going to tell us how the gospel comes to him. He's going to answer, was this something made up? Did he get this message of God's radical acceptance from some sort of secret club? Was there a holy huddle that he was a part of that was somehow disconnected from the rest of Christianity? And he's going to say, no way. Look with me in verse 11. This gospel that I tell you Galatians is not from any man. Rather, in verse 12, I received it through a revelation of or from Jesus Christ. Now, if you were turned to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9 tells about how Paul was on his horse, on his way to Damascus, and the risen, resurrected Jesus appears to him, blinds him, and knocks him off of his horse in the presence of several eyewitnesses. And it is that moment that Paul is talking about right here. Why is that so important? Because the risen Christ met him face to face. He wasn't taught it, but the Gospel, Jesus Himself, came invading His life in a powerful way. Paul is saying a couple of very important things here. First, he wants you to see that he didn't create this with his own reason or rationality. Rather, Jesus invaded His life. Y'all, you have to remember this. Paul hated Christians. He was killing them. Before Osama bin Laden was killed, Paul was the Osama bin Laden of Judaism vis-a-vis Christianity. He was a terrorist by all accounts of the imagination. And the risen Jesus appears to him and stops him dead in his tracks by grace. It is by grace that Jesus invaded his life against his own wishes and against his own will in a powerful way to save him. So you have to remember that these false teachers had begun to spread their message That you had to add something plus Jesus to be acceptable to God. That you had to keep all of the commandments of Moses plus Jesus for God to accept you. And because this so irks Paul, he says, nothing can be the case, y'all. He says this, I had a direct revelation from Jesus. I saw Him face to face. Those are my credentials. In short, this message came to Paul by revelation through incredible, unmerited grace. Illustration. I don't know how many of you ever watched when Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan were on uh, SNL, but they had this uh, skit that I always thought was incredibly stupid except for a couple of things. It was the uh, Night at the Roxbury guys. Do y'all... Do y'all, do enough people know what I'm talking about? Yeah, exactly. The head starts shaking, then then you know what I'm talking about. And I think a lot of the times we think that that's the way that God deals with us. What do I mean? 
We think God kind of, the music's playing, the music starts going, the heads start bopping, and then as uh, Catan and Will Ferrell's character, they look off, you know, they're looking at the camera saying, me, you, you talking, me, you want to dance with me, him, him, you want to dance with me, no, not me, okay, good, I'll just kind of stay back like this. In other words, God kind of listens to our rebuffs. That he, he, he sort of says, oh, Ryan doesn't want anything to do with me? That's fine. I'll sort of pull away. I don't want to interfere with his life. But I want you to know that that is exactly not what Paul says God does. You see, Paul is saying that Jesus came invading in his life when he least wanted it. And that means for you and me, that's the way that God relates to you. You see, the central teaching of Christianity is that the message always invades your life. You and me want nothing, nothing to do with God. Ever. Ever. Until one thing happens. Do you know what? Until He comes invading our lives. You may say, that's not true. Yes, you see, I I remember when I was like eight and I chose God. And you know what? You might have done that. But you know what happened before that? God made your heart soft so that you were able to choose Him. He so worked in your heart and life that you saw Him as beautiful. And so you ran after Him. You can argue with me. I don't have a theological axe to grind, but I'll go there with you if you want to. But here's the idea I'm trying to get across. God always comes to us by grace. You didn't do anything for it. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to say to you right here in this moment. What does this mean for us as we move forward? Listen, I want you to begin to see that for the first time, maybe, the words of Jesus Himself. Listen, this comes from the book of John, chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. And I want you to understand that what this means is is that you have been saved if you are a Christian apart from all of your fine and dandy good works. They don't count for Jack as we'll see in a second. It is by grace. It is by grace that God has set His favor and affection on you. Paul is saying, I did nothing to merit this message. It was all by grace. Jesus appeared to me, not in the corner of the universe somewhere, but with these eyewitnesses and revealed His message to me. Well, what happens then when this message comes in Him? In other words, the message has come to Paul. What does it do now inside of him in his interior life? Look with me at verses 13 through 17. I'm moving on to the second point. The message didn't just come. The gospel did not come to him by grace and just stop there. The message had had its way with Paul. How so? Well, you need to know about this about Paul. Paul was a good Jew. And he kept all the law as best as he possibly could. If you want to read that, 
Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. This is Paul writing. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is what the law required. I was a people of Israel who had the covenants and the blessings of the tribe of Benjamin, which was highly regarded. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I kept it to a T. As to to zeal, I persecuted the church of God. And you can just kind of see him making ticks. Counting up the right ways, how holy and righteous and all the rules that he was keeping. And he says, as to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. In other words, Paul was rooting his acceptance with God in this former way of life on the basis of how well he was keeping the Old Testament law. And that is why we read in verse 14 of our text, turn your eyes there. He was saying, I was advancing in Judaism because beyond many of my own age among my own people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This trusting in one's obedience to the law as the grounds for acceptance with God is what is called legalism. And Paul had a PhD in it. And it is precisely, it is precisely what the Gospel takes and smashes. It utterly shatters it. Here is what I mean. Paul tells us that all of this counted as nothing before God. You think I'm lying? Look at it. Verse 15, But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me, what? By His grace. Paul is saying it was nothing that I did where he had labored to find acceptance with God on the basis of his own works, was utterly shattered. And and if you listen to what the Old Testament... This is going to gross some of you all out. I'm just going to be... Just get ready. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah in chapter 64 says this about all of our... Not our bad works. He says this about all of our good works. He says, you know what they amount to? Nothing more than spent menstrual garments. There you have it. Present that before Jesus and say, look how awesome I am. And Paul says, nope. That's your good works. Shocking, it's the Bible. That's what all of our, not our bad works, that's what the best of our works count before God. So what are we left with? Nothing except one thing. Grace. Grace. And grace alone. The problem is, is that Paul was basing his righteousness before God on the wrong set of standards. Let me illustrate. My friend Sean Slate, who's a campus minister at UVA, tells this story. He says, a couple of weeks ago I was playing soccer with a group of folks over at the park. And I was pretty much amazing. (laughs) Within the first half, I had scored a hat trick. It was awesome. My team was yelling to me and yelling to one another to get the ball to me. And the other team was yelling to keep it away from me. I felt amazing. But at the end of the game, my 13-year-old son and my 10-year-old daughter said to me, you know, Dad, you really need to play with people your own age. (laughs) You see, I was great against the 10-year-old. 
But if I was playing against Arsenal, I would look foolish. And here's why I tell you that story. That's how we go through life, most of us. We get our own sense of worth and value and dignity from a set of standards that either one, we can't measure up to, and so they crush us. Or two, when we do meet them, we become incredibly arrogant and self-righteous. You see, here's what I mean. I'm just going to drive it home. Ladies. Must be pick on the ladies' night. How long was it before you came back to school? Before you looked around and saw all the other girls on campus and declared, I'm nothing. I'll never be that pretty. I'll never be the size zero. How long was it? A couple of weeks? Days? Are we talking more about hours? The gospel utterly frees you from that because it tells you that you are made righteous in Jesus' eyes because of Jesus. Christianity and your life is not about being pretty, as wonderful as that is, but it's about Jesus and how wonderful He is. We'll go to the guys on another night. That's what I want to talk about. Yeah, you're getting off the hook tonight, but not, not later on. I want you to see this. That the gospel shatters as a ground for acceptance, your body type, your hair color, how good you are at sports, as the grounds on which you're acceptable before God. Life isn't about being perfect. It isn't about being the prettiest. It isn't about being the awesomest. It is about Jesus and Jesus alone. Period. For all of us, when the gospel comes into our lives, you will have to see that it will upend you It will confront you at points. You will not like it. You know why? Because it's coming into your life and it's shattering all the things that you have given to your, that you have said, this is what gives my life worth and value and dignity. It comes in and with a hammer and just starts beating the tar out of them. And it gives you something else, something far more beautiful, something that you can't bring to the table, Jesus. That's what happens internally but it doesn't stay there, which moves us to our third point. What happens then, what Paul says, when this gospel begins to go through me? Paul tells us in the following verses, verses 18 to 24, when the gospel comes home, Paul says, it doesn't simply change me on the inside. It is an all-encompassing change. Look at verse 23. I'll read it. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Listen, y'all. Paul was a changed man. The gospel had begun to work on him. It hadn't completed him, but it had changed him. Paul, the former religious extremist, was now preaching the faith that he once hated. What this means is that the gospel has this push-pull dynamic to it. You see, it draws you in and it changes you. It changes the interior life. It smashes those things that we just spoke about. But then it also propels you out into the world to bring the Gospel to bear on all of life. Look, I am not saying that all of you will become preachers like Paul or that you'll become missionaries like he were. That might happen. But what I'm trying to say is this will happen. The things that you once disdained and despised and hated 
because of the Gospel reorienting and rewiring your heart, you will begin to love the things that you once hated. Moreover, the Gospel, when it goes through you, it will empower you to be in the business, as this says here in the last verse, of bringing glory to God wherever you go, whatever you do. You see, some might actually go to the Congo to do missionary work. And it will take great courage and faith to be able to do that. But you know what the vast majority of you will do? You'll stay here. And to do that, you know what that will take? Incredible courage. And incredible faith to do exactly that. You see, it takes incredible amount of trusting in Jesus to remain just where you're at and love people right where you are. And Paul is saying that when the Gospel comes home in your life and it begins to go through you, you now have another principle at work in you where you're able to do just that. Some might go, some might stay. But the bottom line is is that the Gospel changes us to be those who are in the service of the King to bring glory to His name. Look, Paul is saying this, that when the Gospel comes home to us, it radically changes the way that we live out our lives. Application. Hang with me on this. I just want to ask you this. Is Christianity to you a nice little intellectual exercise? Has Christianity remained something that you sort of give verbal assent to and think makes sense upstairs? Or has it begun to flow through your veins in all aspects of your life? Why is that important? Because Paul is telling us, y'all, that believing the Gospel has real practical implications. Listen, we looked at this in another part of uh, 1 John uh, at church one Sunday where it says that the truth is something to actually be practiced. So listen, what does this mean? Has the gospel of God's radical acceptance of you, if you're a Christian, caused others to give glory to God through you? There's a great litmus test. Does that mean you go out and you try to do these things so that God will accept you? No. Look, we're already saying that you have been accepted. But how has this actually changed and infiltrated your life? Here's the caveat I need to say. Some of you, some of you, will actually, I'll have to ask this question. Has the Gospel done anything in your life? Has it changed anything about you? If it hasn't, I'm going to tenderly submit to you, you might have never encountered the Gospel. Because what this is saying here is that when the Gospel comes home and reorients and rewires your life, it changes everything. It changes the way that you live your life. That's what Paul is wanting us to begin to see because him, as this former persecutor of the faith, is now a changed man because of what God's grace has done from him. In the end, we see that the gospel of God's grace in the life of the Apostle Paul came and took a man who hated Christianity and Christians and changed it, changed him to be one of the most foremost advocates of Christianity. 
But here's the point I want to make. All of that is what Paul is going to call freedom. Freedom. To live in line with what the Gospel calls us to is not slavery, but it is freedom. You are most free, therefore, when you are living as God has called you to live. You are never more a woman or a man set free than when you are living as God has called you to live. In fact, as you live to the degree that you live apart from the way that He has called you Christian to live, to the degree that you have done that, Paul is going to say you're a slave. You don't know what freedom is like because you're living now out of accord with who you are. In the 4th century, there was a famous Christian named Augustine, or St. Augustine as he's often referred to. Before his conversion, y'all, Augustine was what we would call a player. He had more sexual exploits than you and I could imagine. His life made what happens on this campus look like a convent. This guy knew women. And when the Gospel came into his life, it utterly changed him. There's a story of him. as He's walking down the street in the town that he was from. And one of his old mistresses saw him. And he saw her. And as he did, he did an about-face and began walking away. And aghast, she said, Augustine, it is I. And as he's walking away over his shoulder, he says, yes, but it is not I. Because the Gospel had come home in his life and utterly changed it and utterly reoriented it. I want you to know that the Gospel radically sets you and me free And when it does, it sets us free from the things that kill us. And it sets us free to the things that will make us whole, that will set us free. The hymn writer, William Cooper, put it best when he penned these words where we'll close. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's what the Gospel does. Believe it and live. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, would You take these things and impress them so deep in our hearts that we might believe them and that we might see Jesus as beautiful. Lord, would You show us Paul's Jesus Would You open our eyes to the very beauty that You hold and that You you are, O Lord, that our lives would be utterly changed, that we might live for the King, bringing glory to Him, because You alone, O Lord, are worthy. You alone are worthy of all of our praise and honor and all all of our heart's deepest affections. Would You show us the beauty of Jesus that that might be true? We ask this in Your name. Amen.